Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have kind of an interesting episode. We wanted to throw Letterboxd into the mix because we both <laughs> love the app. We both use it all the time. So I think it was last month, somebody had tweeted about having a dating app where people could basically Netflix and chill to a common list. So they would know going in. So you're not like scrolling and scrolling and trying to pick something, which I've done mm -hmm. a lot of like just oh, watching. Yeah. I tweeted at Letterboxd. I say, oh, a Letterboxd dating app. And they responded to me and they go, go into your partner's profile. There's a search option that lets you see what mutual films you and somebody else have in your watch list. So Sophie and I looked at what was on our list and it was like a very <laughs> odd few movies. I know Paris, Texas was on there. Yeah. Despite using Map all the time, some on my watch list I'd already seen before <laughs> and <laughs> others were way too obscure to cover on this episode, I feel. So we have a solution. We'll probably do multiple parts to this in the future because there are multiple iterations. We could do mutual watch list films. We could go through different lists. I know that when I'm on Letterboxd, one of my favorite features is to actually make lists where I rank the films by different directors or I categorize them based on themes maybe that might be obscure. But for today, we decided to kind of keep it easy. On Letterboxd in your profile, you can have a top four movies. So we've each picked two movies from our top four. I will be talking about The Tree of Life and Cinema Paradiso. I'm very excited to talk about those. And I will be covering the 1976 classic by Sidney Lumet Network and maybe my Desert Island movie, Paul Thomas Anderson's just perfect film, Phantom Thread. Not surprised in the least for that one. No, not <laughs> at all. Does your top four change a lot or is it pretty static? I probably should change it is the short answer. It hasn't changed in probably 10 years. Oh my God. I don't want okay. like a fluctuating list. It is tough. Four movies is so specific and in wanting to like encapsulate how we see ourselves through movies and what we like in movies, very difficult. So many different genres, time periods, actors that we love, directors. And at some point I will go through and change my list, I'm sure. How do you categorize them? Mine changes all the time. <laughs> I have so many favorite movies that I feel like my top four on Letterboxd, it'll stay the same for maybe a couple of weeks, but then depending on my <laughs> mood or the season. So right now my other two that I could have talked about today are Brief Encounter, which is a fantastic David Lean movie that I love, very similar to Phantom Thread, and then Le Ray en Vert or The Green Ray by Romare. So wanted to stay away from the French New Wave for this podcast. We could cover that maybe <laughs> another time. But I think trying to get a good mix in the top four, but also very much having them be this semi-broad range of how I'm feeling at the time, but also touching on similar themes at once. Mm -hmm. So before we get into Letterboxd, we have tons of movie news and we haven't updated you in a while. I think the wildest thing that we heard this week was that Barry Jenkins is 
doing a Lion King follow-up. According to The Hollywood Reporter, this is going to be a prequel, and it's going to be continuing in the same style that Jon Favreau used for the most recent Lion King, of course, that we talked about on our Mulan episode, and we talked about those Disney live-action remakes. It doesn't have a release date yet, but what do you think about this? He's gotten so much flack for this because it seems like a sellout, and I'm hoping and trusting Barry Jenkins in this decision because I think he really can add something to this new genre, really, of Disney live-action remakes that we didn't think we needed. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I feel similarly. I can't wait to see if Barry does his Jonathan Demme, Barry Jenkins, Paul Thomas Anderson-esque extreme close-ups of these lions. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing I'm also excited about is that we have this really extraordinary Black filmmaker, and I'm curious of how he will bring maybe the African diaspora into the story, making it a little less Disney-fied and more Mm -hmm. complex and integrating themes that he wants to see in this story that the other Disney creators might not have thought of before. Yeah, I'm really hoping he uses his voice and is like, no, we're doing this, or Mm -hmm. no, let's not do that, and potentially push these types of films down a different road and that's super exciting barry collect that disney check when is lulu joining the club and then the next little bit of movie news we got this week we got a trailer for the borat sequel which is titled (laughs) name is ridiculous borat subsequent movie film delivery of prodigious bribe to american regime for make benefit once glorious nation of kazakhstan i can't (laughs) so it'll be premiering on amazon prime on october 23rd right before the election Mm -hmm. what amazed me most is that apparently at some cpac event where mike pence was speaking somebody came in and tried interrupting him and he was in this donald trump suit and everybody in the crowd started chanting usa to drown him out and this person was sasha barra cohen in this donald trump suit carrying this woman over his shoulder like (laughs) just (laughs) insane way he could i shared with you this week and some of our friends that i have never seen borat before i've never had a desire to see it academy nominee I I know. I'm thinking that maybe with the release of this one, I can try it out. You know, I have plenty of time. It's such a unique and full transformation for Sasha that it's just fun to watch and see where he takes things. Because I can only assume that either a lot is improv or just like him doing his own thing. Maybe I'll save it and do a double feature with the sequel. That sounds like a lot. That seems like maybe good to document for the pod. (laughs) (laughs) So... Maybe more exciting, there's going to be a new movie coming out called Francis and the Godfather, directed by Barry Levinson, and this is going to chronicle the production of the godfather this production story is absolutely insane i am obsessed with it when you look at the godfather and you watch it as a complete work you think everything must have gone perfectly because the movie is perfect but it was so far from that they announced that oscar isaac will be playing francis ford coppola and jake gyllenhaal will be playing the paramount producer robert evans what do you think about the casting there this is just top notch who knows if they'll be able to imbue these spirits and their characters and even if they actually looked like them back then but an amazing story already a great cast I I love it I'm intrigued and curious like why Hollywood is going this direction of like it's almost in that remake realm where it's like okay let's go back 
and tell more of the story, even though it's like yeah. real life story, which is, I think, really interesting. But we're getting Mank hopefully soon. I mean, we haven't oh gotten a release God. date yet, but similar idea. And then The Big Goodbye, which is... Chinatown. So I had my comments about Robert Evans when we talked briefly about Ben Affleck's The Big Goodbye and how I love Chinatown. I don't know how I feel about Jake Gyllenhaal playing him. It seems a little off as a casting choice. I'm not as enthusiastic about that one, but I think that Oscar Isaac as Coppola, I can't wait for that. I do find it interesting. I'm reading this book right now called Make My Day, which is about, you know, cinema in the Reagan era. And in the book, they talk a lot about nostalgia for the 50s that came out with films like American Graffiti. And it almost seems like Hollywood right now they have these two paths you can either do these IP Disney Marvel comic book amusement park movies or now they're just retelling the making of the Hollywood classics of the 70s which I love 70s movies but (laughs) it seems just like another Hollywood nostalgia trip right when we could be funding you know more unique projects original works yeah we'll see I mean we'll we'll talk about nostalgia here in a minute but I don't doubt that these are going to be good movies. So we do have a bunch of movies that their releases were postponed. Black Widow originally moved from May 2020 to November 2020. And now they've settled on May 7th, 2021. So we will not have a Marvel movie for the rest of 2020. It's a glorious year. I might sound too excited about that. No, not at all. (laughs) You know, if people want to watch them, they can go on Disney Plus. They're all right there. I mean, there were a lot of people tweeting with, Scorsese's smiling face, Mm -hmm. which was great to see. And then next up is that The Eternals was moved, directed by the glorious Chloe Zhao. Initially slated for release this November, moved to February, and now back to November 2021. All of those were just shifted a year, just like many of the other movies that had already been moved. The other Marvel film that was moved was Shang-Chi in the Legend of the Ten Rings, which was moved back to July 2021. So I think we need to bask in not having Marvel this year because next mm-hmm. year is going to be packed of Marvel love. Just a deluge of <laughs> <laughs> Marvel films. We also heard that No Time to Die, the latest James Bond movie, is also postponed again now April 2nd, 2021. And one of our listeners pointed out that this means that Billie Eilish's song is no longer eligible for Best Original Song at the Oscars. Another one bites the dust. I mean, does that put Taylor Swift in the running again? I don't know. You know, she seems to be taking a backseat in politics lately, like over the past month or so. So again, I'm not sure. But maybe she'll do it for the Oscar. So our other big release that was moved is West Side Story, probably one of the bigger Oscar contenders. It was moved from December 2020 to December 10th, 2021. This is huge. Also, does this mean that Spielberg has enough time to recast Ansel Elgort? So all of these release shifts kind of have me confused because I'm sure these movies are finished or at least near post-production. So it's not like they're going to be reshooting anything. Just like the Witches edition that Kristen Chenoweth is in the film, they pushed the movie back a year and then they brought it back saying they're releasing on HBO Max later this month. It's like, what are you guys doing? She still wasn't in the trailer. Mm -hmm. I don't know what capacity she's in this movie. Does she 
movies have like an end credit scene? I don't understand. Maybe, maybe a song? <laughs> Who knows? But there's no way Ansel's going to leave this film. But the bad press is just not good press in this case. This Oscar year is just so in flux. We still don't know about the French Dispatch. It was delayed indefinitely. We have seen like rumors and reports, mostly on Twitter, that it's eyeing the Cannes 2021 spot, which would mm-hmm. make sense. I mean, it wanted to be at Cannes this year. Mank doesn't have a date yet. I remember, you know, when we first got reports that it would be coming out in October, that was still when the old Oscar date was there. So I'm curious if now that the eligibility window has been extended, if Netflix is eyeing it as more of a Christmas release. So typically a Christmas release would be seen as almost too late or maybe that window for the extra push. But I think we know that Trial of Chicago 7 is coming October 16th to Netflix. That's fair. I think they're probably spacing out their big award features. Mm -hmm. And they have until the end of February to release something. That's definitely something I forget about a lot. It's like, oh, they don't have to be released this year. It's just like I want them ASAP. I can see December 2 because the New York critics groups, they announced that their eligibility window is just through December. Okay. So if they release it in December, it'll be eligible for critics prizes and for all the big awards too. The other big Netflix movie that I can think of right now is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I'm not sure if we have any other big picture predictions, but talking about this one and our movie draft, because we need to update on that, mm-hmm. I guess I've kind of thought that Chadwick Boseman has had a good chance at a posthumous win, or at least a nomination for sure. We just got stills this week from this film. I thought it was a trailer and I was so excited and I was like, ugh, just stills. <laughs> but there are some big performances and even violent. Davis is slated for a nomination here. So what do you think about this one? Yeah, I put in our outline that we really whiffed on this one in the fantasy draft. I suppose I get it with my Netflix pick for picture, but these stills look just fabulous. There's no way it's not getting nominations. Viola Davis, seeing her in these stills, I thought, okay, she's coming for Oscar number two. And I think you're totally right about Chadwick Boseman. I can definitely see a posthumous nomination for sure possibly even a win I don't know how loaded that supporting actor category will be at this point but I think Mm -hmm. we can assume that that's the slot he would run in yeah definitely this to me at least at first was an August Wilson Fences follow-up because he also wrote that and that to me was definitely an acting film not like a picture film Mm -hmm. so I think that's maybe where my draft picks were less overall without any kind of knowledge of the screenplay or these stills we got and that's the risk that we took doing this so early which is like it made it fun but at the same time it's like right. oh how off will we be <laughs> so speaking of that our dear friend bennett friend of the pod lost west side story <laughs> have to strike that from his list and i'm probably losing the french dispatch and maybe dune i'm very oh, scared about God. that one now the theaters are you know they saw how tenant performed they're seeing how coronavirus is going and i know that denis wants the theatrical release you haven't mentioned me losing any pictures yet so minari we got a trailer this week which was phenomenal beautiful oh, looks so good can't wait to see it again a24's next movie and knock on wood gonna be in the running for awards this season did you like the trailer 
What did you I think? I loved the trailer. I thought it was beautiful. It was <laughs> so well made. And I love Steven Yoon. I am still mourning the loss of his should be Oscar nomination for Burning, Burning. that didn't happen. Yep. So I'm hoping that this year he can pick one up for Minari. That's, I think, what I'm hoping for with that movie. So you haven't lost any movies, but I will say I might have the winning movie mm-hmm. <laughs> because... Okay. I haven't seen it yet, but The Trial of the Chicago 7, reviews have been coming out, and they are special. I've seen (laughs) raves that are calling it the best Sorkin, the best movie of the year, typical like hyperbolic, over-the-top Oscar film Mm -hmm. criticism, to this is horrible, one star, and that to me (laughs) means best picture. (laughs) (laughs) because what have we had in the past we've had green book we've had you know jojo rabbit we had vice three billboards that are very polarizing but get a lot of awards and i think that paired with its political timeliness and that sorkin snappy script i'm excited that i picked it and i'm trusting my instincts on it (laughs) i definitely think it's still going to be up there i don't doubt you at all on that so even if it's your only one i think it's a strong one we'll see so now let's go into our letterbox segment let's talk about why we chose the movies that we did not just why they're in our top four but why we wanted to talk about these two specific movies each of us today so like i've said my top 10 really has kind of stayed the same for a while and yes maybe i should update that like movies have come out parasite being one of them that just totally blew me away but when I saw these movies not that I necessarily remember like myself sitting in the movie theater and scene for scene what happens but I think they were just so impactful I'll talk about Cinema Paradiso first but just briefly it's a love letter to cinema and I think Mm -hmm. studying film and just my love for it too that resonates with me so much and I love seeing it on screen I rewatched it actually forgot the ending which might not make it seem that that's like one of my favorite (laughs) movies but it just totally blew me away and still cements itself in my head as like one of the best movies to me and then tree of life i actually do remember sitting in this tiny independent theater and just being blown away at the cinematography and loving every minute and it feeling like it was this experimental artistic and somewhat spiritual experience that I just lost myself in and I could have sat there for like six hours which I think (laughs) soon after the movie came out it there was news that Malik was going to release an extended director's cut and Mm -hmm. I would like look all the time trying to figure out when that was coming out and hoping for it and we got it in some way with the Criterion Blu-ray that came out and I still need to finish it I have made it through part of it but it is long (laughs) but wonderful so they've lasted with me over all these years yeah we'll talk about Malik his films have this beautiful spiritual tone to them that I Mm -hmm. think it's easy to get swept up in the allegory and in the greater teaching that he's going into and I think Tree of Life that is his most successful version of that. I picked Network and Phantom Thread. On the surface, they don't have much in common, but they both are actually about people obsessed with their careers to a fault and how that can affect your life for the worse, I think. And also they have this really interesting look at romance, relationships, and death that I'm really fascinated by. I first saw Network when I was taking a class in college, a film class was all about media and I think network is one of those staple films that you watch and I'd known about it just based on its Oscar history and I just 
procrastinated and started it at like 1230 one night, very late (laughs) and was just completely like locked in the whole time. And I think that's mainly because of Faye Dunaway. The second I saw her, I was like, who is this woman? I knew who Faye Dunaway was, but specifically the Diana Christensen character. I need to know everything about her, all of her motivations. I was just completely fascinated by her and by that performance and the writing. I love a 70s drama and this script is just so slick so punchy Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the best scripts ever written still. Phantom Thread, I have had a love affair with it since I first saw it. I saw it at this tiny theater in D.C. I really didn't know anything about Phantom Thread going into it. I try with all of PTA's movies to really stay away from the buzz and everything like that. But I really was just knocked out flat. The ending, I had tears streaming down my face and I had no idea why. And it still remains you know, my favorite movie of the 2010s. I love the characters. I think it's wickedly smart and kind of a disgusting character story. I adore it. Every year I make the Reynolds Woodcock breakfast for my friends. It's just... (laughs) the best i had seen network before and on rewatch loved it thought the same exact thing the screenplay is out of this world just so impactful and direct and so dark but so real Mm -hmm. and the performances especially Faye, she's just a wacko it's so good but it's amazing (laughs) yeah i mean all of the acting nominations rightfully so Phantom Thread is, I'm warming up to it (laughs) with every new watch. Okay. And I watched a video on it today about how there was a lack of cinematographer, which was really interesting that PTA kind of took over with his team and trusted them. And he shot it all. Speaks to him even more as a creator. (laughs) No, it's true. Some very powerful filmmakers in this bunch of four and lots to talk about. Right. We have Tornatore, Malik, PTA, and Sidney Lumet. And all four nominated for Oscars, which we'll talk about. Which, that's not like a reason for any of my lists of like, oh, what are Academy Award winners or nominees? And like, how can I make a list out of them? It's like, these are the movies I like and thank God they have nominations to their name because, I mean, they deserve it. Mm -hmm. We know we're on like the right path (laughs) (laughs) and the academy was on the right path too so i'll start out with cinema paradiso that was a 1988 film directed by giuseppe tornatore paradiso someone is making their dreams come true in this little town The movies are more than just entertainment. They're a way of life. Like I said, it's a love letter to cinema. Interestingly enough, Tornatore's reasoning behind the film, in a way, was to show the destruction of movie theaters and that eventually, at least he thought he would see them eliminated. And, I mean, scary enough, we're now in a world where Cineworld, this theater conglomerate, is closing all of the regal cinemas in the US and the UK, which is the actual world we live in now. (laughs) So... (laughs) I mean, maybe he wasn't far off. 
So the movie's about a filmmaker who recalls his childhood once he hears that his mentor when he was really young has passed away. So he kind of goes through his whole life and it shows him falling in love with these pictures as he works with this projectionist named Alfredo in this really small Italian village, Giancarlo. And it's really about the relationship between Alfredo and him. So his life is detailed through really three points present day where he's this film director who lives in Rome and then it goes back to when he was Toto this really little boy and then eventually into his 20s he has his first love he falls in love with this girl Elena and he just really starts to evolve with his love for cinema and it is just heartwarming but also heartbreaking at the same time really it's just such a beautiful movie we watched it in high school Italian class that was when I first saw it and this was just I think such a perfect marriage of Italian culture and film and why film is so important to Italians but also to people all over the world it is very sweet and very sentimental I rewatched it the other day and it made me miss going to the movies in just this deep aching way. So in this small town, they only have one theater. And so every week, everybody from the city piles into this theater and they experience it all together at this moment in time. And that sounds so lofty, but it's just beautiful watching it all happen because that's where... Toto specifically he grew up he learned how to be a projectionist from Alfredo and eventually this developed into his love for cinema and throughout the film you see pictures on the walls of these classic black and white films of the turn into sound and then on screen you have Buster Keaton John Wayne Charlie Chaplin the other part to this is that we find out that Toto's father has been killed in the war so he doesn't really have a father figure so Alfredo is that person and it's so touching I mean especially through the ending to see not only Toto rely on Alfredo but like how they have formed such a lasting relationship from this experience at the cinema I guess going back to the Oscars this one best foreign language film in 1990 was the only nomination for the movie which is upsetting but Mm -hmm. thankfully at other ceremonies it won the grand jury prize at Cannes and then at the BAFTAs it had a slew of nominations won five categories and thankfully for Ennio Morricone who passed away earlier this year but this score is just so iconic and one of his most well-known it's one of my favorite scores and I think that even if you haven't seen Cinema Paradiso if you are at all familiar with film scores I think hearing this one you might Mm -hmm. be like oh hey I recognize that that sounds familiar because it is so so beautiful and it is used pretty often my roommate walked in when I was watching this and he was like oh that was from that guy who died and I was like <laughs> oh my god yeah and you Morricone but he like recognized the sound mm-hmm. from the movie even though he hadn't seen the movie before so yeah. that's so well known interestingly enough and your son actually composed the love theme for this movie and obviously Enyo arranged and composed the rest of the music but he mm-hmm. used that theme throughout so one other fun fact because when I saw this I was like, why is this happening? So Fredo, his name is Philippe Noiret, so obviously French. His lips never match what he's saying in the movie. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I found out that he spoke French for all of his lines because that was his native language. 
And then they had an Italian actor dub over him. Oh my God. I did not realize that. But I did notice and I thought thought it was my HBO of why this was happening. (laughs) What is going on here? But that makes so much more sense. And then funny enough for the French version, he had to dub over the Italian actor who was dubbing himself (laughs) for that version. Just crazy. That's just such a strange fun fact. We have so many more strange facts coming. (laughs) If you haven't seen this, it is on HBO Max now. Beautiful movie. Highly recommend. It's on so many top lists. Most of these are, if not all of them, on like AFI's, IMDb's top 250. So definitely go and see it. Watch it again. So you mentioned that Tornatory might have, you know, been able to see into the future a little bit with movie theaters. (laughs) Sidney Lumet and Patty Chayefsky could definitely see into the future with Network. Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... sakes, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. If you haven't seen it, still brief description here. When veteran anchorman Howard Beale is forced to retire his 25-year post because of his age, he announces to viewers that he will kill himself during his farewell broadcast. Network executives rethink their decision when his fanatical tirade results in a spike in ratings. If you've heard about Network but haven't seen it, they use words like timely, prophetic, prescient and that's because you know at the moment we have a reality tv star as president and howard beale is very much that type of character and you see these media executives and how they respond and how they play with viewers and it is very much a satire even though lumet and chayefsky didn't intend it to be that way they were definitely documenting real life but it does Mm -hmm. have a very cynical bend to it which I really respond to so it was directed by Sidney Lumet written by Patty Chayefsky who um, was a very famous screenwriter but also a playwright it feels like a play I think as you're moving through it which is also something I respond really well to it has a phenomenal cast Peter Finch William Holden Faye Dunaway who we mentioned Robert Duvall and Beatrice Strait and like I said it really just predicts how bad everything was going to get and on rewatch I almost found it hard to watch because of the situation that we're in now. I think while it's documenting reality, I think the first time I watched it, you know, you could view it with this cynicism almost as a farce, but now actually living in it and seeing how those characters really are around us everywhere. It Mm -hmm. was just incredible that these filmmakers created something like this in the 70s. I was so entranced when I started this movie. Obviously, there are iconic moments, but you're thrown into it so quickly. I thought things were going to progress like much more slowly, but you hear Howard saying, I'm going to shoot myself on live TV in like the first maybe 10 minutes, not even. And it's just, you are right in the action, the drama, and the script is just so good. You can't look away. And I find that Lumet is such an incredible director that the transitions between what's happening with Beale's ratings and Diana's relationship with Max and the way that, you know, she's evolving as this villainous character, but also this leader of the newsroom. 
these transitions are so seamless. Another director really could have bungled this whole thing and made a mess of it because there really is a lot going on. Faye Dunaway talks a lot about how he has such a command over his sets. I don't want to spoil this movie for anyone who maybe hasn't seen it because I know that even though it is really well known, a lot of people probably haven't seen it since it is from the 70s unless you, you know, studied film or, you know, just seek out Oscar winning movies. So I don't want to spoil it. But what I will say is Diana Christensen, Faye Dunaway's character, it was so interesting to watch her, I think, in 2020 because, I mean, she's a maniac. But Mm -hmm. I think that we've seen her called a villain and she definitely, you know, is the villainous character of the movie. But I think that now so many male execs act that way. You know, they want the best ratings. They only think about work. They act like the men, you know, in quotes, in relationships. So all of these flaws that she has, all of these issues that she has as a character, men totally get away with. So I think that only adds to how she's just such a compelling character especially for a movie set in the 70s. I totally agree. I think all of the men in the film, old white men, mm-hmm. are this idea of what media has been and what it is. And in Diana is this image of this young woman and the future of media and taking it in a new direction. And I think the men eventually and in reality pick up on that, take over her role, and that's who the new Diana is. These these men are the Diana. And I guess, yeah, you can see her as a villain, but everybody's a villain Mm -hmm. to themselves, to media, to the world. And it's just scary to watch because you are watching reality happen. Media as a circus, this is what happens when you rely on money and good ratings you're going to do what gets people to watch your show. And, you know, saying you're going to commit suicide on live air, you know, dare we bring up Joker. Oh my God. Is going to bring in the ratings. And it's just an interesting devolution. And to see like where they go with this and where she goes with this and what she introduces as this new series is just, it's wild. You mentioning the old white men is so funny because they really are just totally interchangeable. Like you at some points really can't tell any of them apart like they're just (laughs) this like old guard of the news media and then you have Robert Duvall who's like the middle guy like the Mm -hmm. transition between the old and the new and then you have Faye coming in you know in her like perfectly tailored beige 70s outfits that I just I love who represents this new media coming in just like you said and it's so interesting so Lumet told Faye Dunaway that she couldn't give Diana any human moments where he would cut them out so she is supposed to be this like bad quote-unquote character but at the same time if you really think about it like this is how a lot of these people in these careers are it's like no human moments at all only dedicated Mm -hmm. to their work and to money so it is a really fascinating watch I think especially right now in the world that we're living in there's so many quotes from this movie and they're not going to give anything away but it's just Mm -hmm. how destructive this ideal is and you know where we've come and honestly where we're still going this violates every canon of respectable broadcasting they say multiple times how they're like not turning their news station into like pornography Mm -hmm. there is no america there is no democracy only ibm at&t dow love that so chilling and i think the way that lumet and chayefsky depict the relationship between diana and max there's also a really funny thing here is that william holden 
is in Sunset Boulevard. And in Sunset Boulevard, he plays the young man who loves the old woman. And in Network, he's the old man with the young woman. And Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that Faye Dunaway, even in her relationships, and she tells us right off the bat that men tell her all the time how she's so lousy at relationships and we see it just fall apart because it's how obsessed with work she is. And one thing I love what she says is, well, Max, here we are, middle-aged man reaffirming his middle-aged manhood and a terrified young woman with a father complex. What sort of script do you think we can make out of this? So even when she's talking about her relationship, she brings it back to TV. She's always thinking about how she can make every little bit of her life into something that would be on TV. And then the most famous quote, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That Mm. scene... He comes in minutes before he's supposed to go on and he's telling people through their screens to like go outside and scream and you start hearing everybody scream and you just get goosebumps because I mean it's this whole nationalistic new wave thing happening where it's like you just want to hear what everyone is thinking and he's saying it. And Lumet's (laughs) filming as he's just you look up at these just gray apartment buildings it almost looks like people are yelling out of prison. It's so chilling and frightening. And it almost, though, with everything that's going on right now, when I was watching this, I was like, I want to yell out my window, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I am mad <laughs> as hell and I can't take this anymore. <laughs> honestly just a fantastic film it's not on streaming right now you can rent it on amazon prime which is what i did a good perk about that is there are tons of facts that come up as you're watching the movie and (laughs) i have to share my favorite one and we'll give you just the perfect picture of faye dunaway competing for beauty titles dunaway remembers in her autobiography that she was somehow convinced that she could not leave florida where she was from until she won one she missed being crowned May Queen at Leon High School in Tallahassee by a mere six votes and had another near miss at a title when she was voted runner-up for Miss University of Florida in 59. Dunaway finally scored her beauty crown when she was named Sweetheart of Sigma Chi and promptly transferred to Boston University. <laughs> Not even relevant to network, so I have what? no idea why it came up, but... <laughs> tells you everything you need to know about Miss Problematic Faye. So a little bit about Oscars. This was nominated for nine Oscars and won four. So it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for William Holden, Best Supporting Actor for Ned Beatty, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. It won Best Actor for Peter Finch, who won the award posthumously. We'll talk about that. Best Actress for Faye Dunaway, Best Supporting Actress for Beatrice Strait, Best Screenplay for Patty Chayefsky. A little bit about Beatrice Strait. Her performance was five minutes and two seconds long, which makes it the shortest win to date. Crazy. I had to look up all these names because I didn't know who half of these people were. And I was like, wow, really? She won an Oscar for her one scene where she like screams at Max, but like still. And she's good in it, but she beat Piper Laurie and Carrie. Wow. Justice for Piper Laurie. And so we mentioned Peter Finch died before the 1977 ceremony and was the first person to win win posthumously and this didn't happen again until a fellow Aussie Heath Ledger won posthumously for playing the Joker. One more Oscar fact before I get into Peter Finch. Lumet was openly furious 
that he lost Best Picture to Rocky. And I understand. I would be too, yeah. Again, it's tough. I can see why Rocky won, mm-hmm. but Network, I think, will just last so much longer. If you are interested in Network, there's this really great book called Mad as Hell. It's by Dave Itzkoff. He's a New York Times journalist. And there was an Oscar scandal around Peter Finch. So after he died, there was lots of talk, like even in the papers, in the press, about who would go get Peter Finch's Oscar if he won. And the producers of the Oscars said, you know, if this happens, you can have anyone from the cast, you know, maybe Patty Chayefsky can get it, maybe Sidney Lumet. And Patty Chayefsky was like, well, we want his widow to get it. And the Oscars said, absolutely not. Like someone from the cast has to get it. And this was after the Sachin Littlefeather incident with Marlon Brando. So I think the Oscars were very protective of someone going up on stage that, you know, wasn't in the cast or crew to get the Oscar. But another really interesting story here. So film critic Amy Nicholson, she thinks that it's more about bad optics. And Peter Finch's widow, Aletha Finch, is black. She's Jamaican. And maybe the Oscars didn't want her to go up on stage because they knew that they had an issue with race. A black actor hadn't won since Hattie won for Gone with the Wind. Wow. So what ended up happening is that Patty Chayefsky went up to get Peter Finch's Oscar and he said, I have no idea why I'm up here. And he welcomed (laughs) Aletha Finch up on stage to collect the Oscar. Good for him. Good for her. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. Another speech I have to go watch. Definitely. So along with the acting nominations, I believe this is the last time there were five acting nominations for a movie. And it's also the last time that we had Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress all go to the same movies. And then it's interesting that all of the winners, so Beatrice, Faye, and Peter, were never in the same scene together. They never actually spoke to each other, especially with Diana and Howard being the two biggest roles in the film. They were Mm -hmm. never in the same room. That is so interesting. It's crazy, but again, just like speaking to Patty's abilities as a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, and too, they all had scenes with William Holden and he didn't win. So he was right. kind of this, like the one, their scene <laughs> so partner who didn't win. But I do think too, it's a testament you said to write Patty's writing, but also to Lumet's direction because the scenes where you just look at Faye's eyes when she sees Howard Beale just, you know, losing it further and further, it is just like, you see how excited she is. It's just this like manic look. And you just think like, how? Did you get this? This is crazy. So I think that's enough on network and all my theories. Why don't you talk about the tree of life? Someday we'll fall down and weep. And we'll understand it all. All things. So tree of life one of the most polarizing films probably ever. This movie is about a family in Waco, Texas in 1956. The eldest son witnesses the loss of innocence and struggles with his parents' conflicting teachings. The movie starts out, you see this young girl. There's a line that says there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one. And that's pretty much what the film is detailing. You have this family who's led by Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain 
Bane, and Brad is nature, Jessica is grace. They have three sons, and the story really just revolves around one of the sons and his struggle with basically, am I going to be my dad? Am I going to be my mom? And we kind of flash between the young version of him as Jack and then the older version of him who is played by Sean Penn. And we just kind of see how he struggled his entire life to figure out who he is. I mean, one of the last lines of the movie, he, as older Jack, says, always you wrestle inside me, always you will. And it's just this constant struggle. This is such a horrible description. It's (laughs) tough because (laughs) half the movie is just like beautiful cinematography and shots of nature and the cosmos. And I mean, the cinematography is done by Emmanuel Lubezki, who did The Revenant and Birdman and Gravity and all these amazing films. He's one of the best in the industry. And what he does is so profound and moving. And I mean, you go back to like the age of dinosaurs and the creation of Earth and cells and water and fire and very beautifully done. But it's so abstract. So many people left the theaters when this was filmed because there wasn't Mm -hmm. a story really. I mean, there is, but it's not the whole film so what do you have to say about it you can kind of add to any kind of mumblings that I've said so far I think it's beautiful like the way that it is shot the cinematography every single frame is just the prettiest thing you've ever seen the story is very abstract I think it is a harder movie it is not for everyone it has a three-hour runtime which is you know that hinders a lot of people from completing it in addition to it having an abstract storyline it's like 140 minutes and then the extended version is just over three hours so it is on the longer side but if you're going for the original which most people do it's just over two we'll say (laughs) maybe more people will watch it so but this leads me all to say that i'm surprised you love it because i think (laughs) one of the things we you know disagree on sometimes it's like I like these slow burns with like you know beautiful cinematography but like not much of a captivating story and this kind of checks those boxes (laughs) like Barry Lyndon I mean I it's not Barry Lyndon I think Barry Lyndon is humorous and this is like not that this is much Mm -hmm. more spiritual so I'm curious about that of why this one works really well for you but maybe some of the other ones that are slow burns I mean, I think just as humans, we struggle in what our existence means and where we're going and finding our true selves. And I think I was just so entranced by the cinematography, the images, Mm -hmm. and just really I hadn't expected what was happening. And I was so enthralled and I was Mm -hmm. ready for what was next because I didn't know what was coming. And it's just so poetic. Every time I rewatch this, I just have a million thoughts going through my head and Mm -hmm. trying to break down everything and you know the film encapsulates all of these in this idea that there's good and evil and there are two sides to every coin so it's finding the simplicity in the complexity of everything around us i totally see that and i think maybe if you haven't seen the tree of life but if you really love 2001 a space odyssey this reminded me of that i had very similar watching experiences I think for my first time with each of those and even though I mentioned that it doesn't have a ton of dialogue the lines in it some of them I'm just like oh like that's (laughs) that's like really real that's you know (laughs) like unless you love your life will flash by Mm -hmm. tell us a story from before we can remember like all of these lines are just so beautiful and so poetic and Brad Pitt's in it (laughs) (laughs) 
It's like very peak dad Brad Pitt too. It is, yeah. We can talk about the Oscars of it all, but I can't believe Lubeski didn't win. And then I realized that Hugo won cinematography. Another beautiful movie. I think this year oh, was yeah. particularly tough, but I mean, this is why I pushed so hard for this to win in our 2010s decade. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy we chose it. I mean, deservedly so, but somewhat surprising that it was nominated for picture and then also directing for Terrence Malick and cinematography for Chivo. And you bring up 2001 because I think this is like a perfect companion piece to that. Very different way, but Malick actually asked Douglas Trumbull, who worked on 2001, to do the visual scenes for the tree of life i love that so there is a connection it's a more demanding watch if you just let yourself fall into it you won't be disappointed and it's a very very rewarding film once you make it through and i shouldn't even say make it through it is an enjoyable experience but i think i'm just thinking of some of our friends and listeners who (laughs) might be a little hesitant to watch so i don't think it's streaming on any service right now but you can rent it on prime but also the criterion is out there with the extended version a worthy buy <laughs> definitely okay is it time stop playing this game what game what precisely is the nature of my game all your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game this was an ambush stop are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life stop it whatever you do do it carefully My second film is the 2017 Paul Thomas Anderson film Phantom Thread. For those of you who haven't seen it, it is about a renowned British dressmaker named Reynolds Woodcock who comes across this waitress named Alma who is this young, strong-willed woman who soon becomes this fixture in his life as both his muse and his lover. I'm not going to spoil it, at least not going to spoil the ending. But if you haven't seen it, just you have to watch it. So good. But it stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Vicky Crapes, and Leslie Manville. It was nominated for six Oscars, picture, director, actor for Daniel Day-Lewis, supporting actress for Leslie Manville, and best original score by Johnny Greenwood. And it won best costume design for Mark Bridges. You may remember if you watched this Oscars that Mark Bridges rode off on the jet ski as like part of a bit at the Oscars because he had the shortest acceptance speech. Very weird. Phantom (laughs) Thread should have been celebrated more. So going into why I love this movie just so much, it really is just on paper everything that I love about film. It is beautifully shot. The score is incredible. I think that the script is ingenious and it tips its hat to some of my favorite old movies like Brief Encounter, The Passionate Friends, these really great David Lean movies, Hitchcock. Hitchcock's wife, actually, her name was Alma, which is where Alma, Hmm. this character, comes from. I love that on its surface, it may strike you as, okay, this is just another story about like a guy who, you know, is demanding and fussy and complains all the time and is this genius artist who actually does nothing but treat women terribly. But that's not what it is at all. And I think that's what's so, so genius about it is that his sister, Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, she is actually the one who runs the business. You know, without her, he couldn't do anything. 
and you know he acts like he's this confirmed bachelor but then when Alma comes around he's really forced to reconsider all of the choices that he's made but she's the example of how I think women even back then in order to have careers that they wanted they were forced to operate within systems to get there so what is so fascinating and why I called it this incredible feminist story is that you see Alma transition into this fashion designer of her own through little little decisions that she makes little ways that she goes against him to have control in this relationship and it's just this I think completely glorious tete-a-tete between the two of them and it's very dark (laughs) at the same time again I said I don't want to spoil but it is incredibly dark and I think the reason too that it's on this this list we teased at the end of the last episode that we're talking about deal breaker things for us for letterboxd (laughs) one of my deal breakers I think is that if you see this movie and you don't laugh we will not be good together because this movie is not only a horror movie in some senses, but it's one of my favorite romantic comedies. The script is just, it's so well-written and hilarious. I mean, I think Leslie by far is the funniest character and not in like a Joe Pesci way. Her line readings. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, she knows what she wants and needs and what Reynolds needs. Mm -hmm. And it's her way or the highway. And her delivery is so perfect like when they get into a fight and she's just like don't pick a fight with me you certainly won't come out alive so good I really love to I mean I know he's being so mean to Alma in this scene but she really holds her own in the dinner scene I mean when he just comes downstairs and he's wearing like pajamas and a vest over top and a jacket and he's like were you sent here to ruin my evening or quite possibly my entire life oh my god so funny <laughs> it's that British humor that's just it's just yeah. so good. Maybe what people find difficult about it is that it is very dry, but that's just the way I think British entertainment is. And either you get it or you don't for some people. This film has like the potential to be a cult classic. It already is in some spheres. Its fans mm-hmm. are, as you could tell by me, very passionate about it. It's had screenings at the Metrograph since, you know, it's a big New Year's movie. I mentioned earlier the iconic breakfast scene. I think it's just a perfect movie. I really do. If you're not into maybe gothic horror or British films, how it could be harder, Mm -hmm. but it's just incredibly well made. And it's inspired by PTA's relationship with Maya Rudolph. So if you know that going in, that's (laughs) even more incentive to watch it. I'm waiting for her to show up in one of his movies. I can't imagine what what he would portray her as in a film. Oh my God. I can't wait for that to happen. I hope it does. I was going to say, I mean, spoiler wise, it's not like a spoiler ridden movie, but I think their relationship is something that really hasn't been captured before. And maybe the twists and turns in that is what Mm -hmm. like you want to hide from people who haven't seen this. Um, For sure. It is worth seeing. I'm not hesitant to watching it again. One day you'll be like, wow, I was so wrong about this movie. You were... (laughs) Right. Again. <laughs> so if you do want to watch it or rewatch it, because I know that its fans rewatch it all the time, it is available to stream on Peacock, NBC's new streaming oh, wow. platform. There are so many great Hitchcock movies on there, too. And really Strange. interesting, like horror movies and monster movies and... Hmm. 
Phantom Thread, which also fits into all cool. those categories. So so in a last little segment here, we're just going to talk about some deal breakers that we have. So this is another maybe full pod in the future. Who knows? But way we can interpret this letterboxed prompt because on the app, people have horrendous movies in their top four. And that is like a complete deal breaker. <laughs> so we want to expand on this a little bit and talk about like, what are some red flags for us when you talk about movies in the movie? going experience or just deal breakers in general yeah so we have a couple of film scenarios and films that could be in someone's top four so we'll just run through these and discuss whether or not they would be red flags or deal breakers so the first is if someone tells you like if a guy says i'm not really a movie person it's like an immediate like oh god (laughs) great do we like have to keep talking (laughs) even if you meet someone at a party it's like okay so this is going nowhere like can i just leave and go talk to other people (laughs) to me it tells me you don't have an attention span and that is something that i would struggle with like okay do you just watch tv like do you think that you're above watching films because you're interested in like serious (laughs) material like no no thank you (laughs) deal breaker a big deal breaker for me is saying that you either watched dubbed movies over subbed movies which means you'd rather listen to like a foreign or international film of it being dubbed by say english actors over reading subtitles or hearing people especially with parasite and bong joon ho's response to all this but people who say i don't like movies with subtitles that's like an immediate next yeah, that's a deal breaker for me too. So probably mentioned before, I watch subtitles with everything, like not even international yeah. films. But this to me also, similarly to like, I'm not really a movie person. This just shows you're not willing to get outside of your comfort zone and appreciate something from maybe a culture that you're not familiar with. I think international films are one, so eye-opening, but two on the whole like maybe better than american cinema that's saying a lot because hollywood and independent cinema here has gone through so many different changes and there's just so much more to experience with say korean films or french films the french new wave Mm -hmm. and italian neorealism and it's just you can go on and on okay our next one this is just like so i think so frustrating understood inception but couldn't really keep the timeline straight in Little Women. So I put this as a deal breaker category for me because to me this shows like you are only interested in things that are very like heteronormative, masculine, and Mm -hmm. not interested in stories about women and paying attention to them because (laughs) if you actually look, like Little Women is much easier to understand than something like Inception. Yet if you're not doing the work to understand it, that's why it's harder for you. This will always be such a point of contention for the adapted screenplay category for last year with JoJo winning over Little Women. But Little Women is a great film. A similar thing for me is like, you know, something I come across with straight men is when they just won't watch like Call Me By Your Name or stories about gay men. That's Mm -hmm. an instant red flag (laughs) deal breaker for me. Let alone that it's like such a beautiful movie. Another huge (laughs) deal breaker for me. Oh, my God. Is if you even look at your phone in a movie theater, it's over. Like, that's it. We can't be friends. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's a big one. Do you remember when we saw Joker and that guy in the front row was on his phone the, ent- the whole time. entire time? And he was, like, up front, uh. so all you could see was the big screen. And it was 
she's like, why are you here? Why did you pay to come see this movie if you're going to oh be on God. your phone the whole time? When I saw Pain and Glory, I was in a small theater and I was so excited to enjoy this El Moldovar film. And then this lady starts talking on her phone in like the front <laughs> section. I think I did yell at her, like, put your phone away. Like, that is just so distracting. Let alone somebody next to you pulling their phone to their side, like checking their texts or the time. It's like, if you needed to get a text so badly that you need to pull your phone out, like, you shouldn't have come to this movie. I'm sorry. This is obviously pre-pandemic. But if someone says like, oh, I don't really see the point in going to a movie theater. Like it's expensive. Like it's gross. You're around all these strangers. It's dirty. Like why wouldn't you just watch at home? That's a huge red flag. Because going to the movie theater is so important to me. And yeah. you know, long term, that's just an issue. But it's not a deal breaker because I think I could maybe convince them. And I also like going to movies alone. So maybe I'll be like, fine, you can watch at home. I'll go by myself. <laughs> Definitely the majority of my movie going experiences have been going to the theater alone. Yeah. Like I just enjoy it so much more. One of my issues that I have watching movies with other people is when you're watching a movie that it is your first time seeing it, both of you, and you're with someone who asks you questions while you're watching it. I'm like, I've never seen this before either. Why do you think that I know? <laughs> Let me watch. <laughs> I mean, on the flip side, if it's with somebody who hasn't seen it and you've seen it and they're like, okay, what's going to happen? It's like, stop. That's what the movie's for. That's like, it's telling you what you need to know. And if it wants to hide something, there's a reason. So like, yeah. enjoy it and just experience it. And the most truly depressing thing is when you're showing someone a movie that you really love and they're on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> and you just look over and you're like, this is like a good part. You look up, please. <laughs> I've had very similar experiences like group viewings and people just like reacting way too loudly to things and it's like okay enough just watch the movie please <laughs> this next part for parasite i found all of these people who have rated it like one star half a star didn't understand why these things had to happen to this family and didn't like it at all don't think it's a social commentary it's like what what are you saying right now so with that regard, if you don't like Parasite, that's a deal breaker. But these are our deal breaker movies that if this is in your top four, then like we're going to have an issue. So my number one that I found on multiple profiles, these are like actual people on Letterboxd. Joker was in way too many. And I was like, oh, God, I can't. <laughs> I love that we both looked at actual profiles to help us with this exercise. A couple that I listed, I found that if a guy tells a woman that this is his favorite movie, you run for the hills because there <laughs> is just no reason why this would be their favorite movie unless they're just trying to get with you. <laughs> the Notebook and Love Actually. So Because they're lying? Is that why? Yes, or... they're lying. They don't actually <laughs> love these movies. Like The Notebook and Love Actually? No, they think that's what you want to yeah. hear. I mean, Love Actually is one of my favorite holiday movies. Yeah, but Nick, you're not trying to get with a woman. Like, this is... It's different. <laughs> I'm just telling you. I'm conflicted if this is like a deal breaker or a red flag for me. I'm leaning towards red flag, but like Marvel films in general... <sighs> 
it's not like a an immediate cut but it's not great <laughs> for me it's like if that's in your top four it definitely depends which one but i have two questions one what else have you seen and two, are you trying to be funny or ironic? I think if Endgame is up there, that's a deal breaker. But like Black Panther is totally fine. If there's like Iron Man up there, that's like two strikes already. So I don't, yeah, it does depend which one is up there. As long as you have an explanation and a believable one at that, I think it's fair. But you like really have to sell yourself on Joker for me. So we really went for it today with this letterbox episode. Next week... We are going to be talking about a lot of movies that we really love. We are going to be doing another movie draft, but this time it is all about horror movies for Halloween. We are well into spooky season. I've watched so many horror movies getting ready for this already. I love October because it's just full of rewatches and, I mean, new ones so far this year of scary movies. One of my favorite genres just the best and we have plenty of subcategories like slasher films even by decade like 70s horror films that we'll be Mm -hmm. choosing movies from so i think this one's going to be really fun and perfect for october totally so thanks for listening everybody we'll see you next time wear your masks stay safe thanks everyone we'll see you next week stay safe and wear your masks